Good morning. My task this morning is to conclude our sermon series in the book of Isaiah. After today, we will have dedicated 51 sermons to this literary masterpiece. This book of prophecy, which has covered everything from the sin of God's own people to the glorious redemption and transformation he has in store for them. It has covered everything from the creation of the world to the end of the world. Everything from the work of God among one people group to the invitation of God to all people groups. Everything from the witness of heaven and earth against violence to the eternity of a new heaven and a new earth in peace, which flows like a river. Now, I'm aware that some of you have really enjoyed studying Isaiah over the last year. And I am also aware that some of you have not enjoyed it as much, and you've struggled with this book. That is okay. We don't all connect with certain kinds of literature, even biblical literature, with the same level of interest. But with this final sermon, I would like to recap the entire book to help us pull it together, and then I'll take a brief look at Isaiah's conclusion in the last few verses. I would like to show you this morning, you can see in your outline, why Isaiah was worth studying how the book fits together, and then in Isaiah's conclusion, we'll see how God's glory advances. Let me pray once again for our time. Our Father in heaven, we are your people, but we are an undeserving people. Uh, We do not deserve your restoration and your mercy. We deserve your judgment. And yet you have plucked us out of the fire You have set your name upon us that we might proclaim your glory among the nations. Please help us now by the power of your spirit. Help us to revel in this marvelous book of Isaiah that you have given to us. Help us to understand the message that you have placed here for us and for all peoples at all times. I pray that you would help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a brief explanation of why Isaiah was worth studying. In short, Isaiah was worth studying because the New Testament would not make sense without it. The New Testament would not make sense without it. The entire Christian faith is wrapped into this book of Isaiah. Now, a little over a year ago, in the first sermon of this series, I read a list of quotes from Isaiah found in the New Testament. It's not an exhaustive list. There there are even more quotes than the ones I read. These were simply the most recognizable ones. So let me now remind you of just how much the New Testament authors relied on the book of Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. By his wounds you have been healed. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He was numbered with the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Lord, who has believed our report? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I will put my trust in him. The root of Jesse will come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. That's only a few. If I were to list out for you the, the and those were just the quotations of Isaiah, the, the explicit direct quotations. If I were to list out for you the allusions and the phrases that the New Testament authors borrow from the book of Isaiah, that list would go on and on and on. Let me remind you again of just a few of them, just a handful. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, new heavens and new earth. He gave himself for our sins, light to the nations, by his wounds you are healed, the suffering servant, a ransom for many, suffer and be rejected, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the many will be made righteous, Christ died for our sins, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, unquenchable fire, being taught of God, light for the Gentiles, blessings of David, a remnant shall be saved, found by those who didn't seek me, a disobedient people, a spirit of stupor, the wisdom of the wise, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, speak in strange tongues, the breath of his mouth, feeble hands and weak knees, feet swift to shed blood, like clay in the hand of a potter lest tomorrow we die the acceptable time the day of salvation god supplies rain and seed a precious cornerstone owning a vineyard and expecting it to bear fruit you are my witnesses i am the first and the last the skies roll up like a scroll robe stained in blood no hunger or thirst wipe away every tear the children god has given me behold your god so why was it worth it to study isaiah there is no christianity without isaiah it would be a horrendous understatement to say that the New Testament authors relied heavily on the book of Isaiah to explain what God was up to in the world. 
They quoted or alluded to Isaiah more than 400 times, more than any other Old Testament book except perhaps the Psalms. Almost every New Testament book references Isaiah in some way. Jesus defined his ministry and his identity in terms taken from Isaiah. Isaiah is so ridiculously influential on the shaping of the New Testament and therefore on the Christian faith that it's almost impossible to conceive what Christianity would be like without Isaiah's labels and categories. If we had no suffering servant, no righteous one given for many transgressors, no light for the nations and no unquenchable fire or new heavens and new earth, Christianity would have no guts. So why did we study Isaiah? Because Jesus and the New Testament authors profoundly relied on Isaiah both to describe and to shape what they were trying to do. Brothers and sisters, if we don't get Isaiah, we don't get Jesus. I repeat, if we don't get Isaiah, we don't get Jesus. So let me now walk through the whole book of Isaiah one last time to show you how it fits together and what we ought to get to learn about Jesus. How the book fits together. The book of Isaiah is a masterpiece presented in three acts. Act 1, chapters 31 to 39, speaks most directly to the people of Isaiah's own day in the 8th century BC in the nation of Judah in southern Palestine. Act 2, chapters 40 through 55, has an implied audience projected into the future from Isaiah's day of those Jews who had been judged by God and exiled to the empire of Babylon. And Act 3... Chapters 56 to 66 has an implied audience projected even further into the future from Isaiah of Jews who had returned to their homeland but were struggling to repair the ruins and rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. Isaiah writes all these things in his time period anticipating all these things that the Spirit of God revealed to him about what future generations of his people would go through. And so Isaiah builds a case throughout the book, to guide them back to the true worship of Yahweh, made possible only by Yahweh's chosen one, his Messiah. And I'll give you some application up front. This book ought also to guide us back to the true worship of the only God, the holy, holy, holy God, the God who is like no other God. Be amazed and be astounded at this God who would do all these things. What things? Let me show you how it fits. Letter A, the big picture. The big picture of Isaiah's argument has two parts. What Yahweh will do and how he will do it. The big picture has two parts, what Yahweh will do and how he will do it. 
as for what Yahweh will do, <clears throat> Isaiah had two subpoints, two things that Yahweh will do. Yahweh will judge rebels and he will restore the trusting remnant. He will judge rebels and he will restore the trusting remnant. This is the big picture of the whole book. Our series tagline that's been on slides, if you see them, before and after the service, it's been judgment and restoration for sinners. That's the big idea of what Yahweh will do. He judges rebels and he restores those who trust. As for how Yahweh will do it, there was one main idea in three parts. Yahweh will accomplish both judgment and restoration. Here's the big idea. Through his chosen one. That's how he will do it. He will do it through his chosen one. Through a hero who will come and take care of business to set everything straight. Now that hero took on three personas over the course of the book. In act one he was portrayed as a king who would rule in power and justice. And by the way you can see some of these things in the outline on the facing page. The, out, the map of Isaiah. Or we've tried to keep you posted on where we are in the book throughout the series. In Act 1, he was portrayed as a king to rule in power and justice. In Act 2, he was portrayed as a servant who would obey Yahweh and suffer terribly for having done so. And in Act 3, he was portrayed as a conqueror who would defeat evil once and for all to gather in all God's children from among the nations and to establish his kingdom age of radiant light, of prosperous abundance and the pleasing aroma of authentic worship. That's where it was all going, back to true worship. So that's the big picture. What Yahweh will do is judge and restore. How he will do it is through his chosen one, his king, servant, and conqueror. Now let me connect the dots of this book a little more closely. Starting with Act 1. Let it be Act 1. Chapters 31 through 39. Act 1 of the book begins with five chapters of piercing accusation against the Jews. The values of these people are all screwed up. Their priorities are out of order and their worship is a repulsive stench in the nostrils of the God they claim to serve. So in chapter 6... Isaiah himself experiences for the people what the nation must go through. He experiences a vision of God in his exalted glory and a cleansing from God to purge sin and a call from God to something greater than themselves and a promise from God that at least a precious few will at least will will, will in fact get with the program a precious few. In chapters 7 to 12 then, all of those things were illustrated. We saw the glory of God promised, and we saw the cleansing from God anticipated. We saw the call from God issued, and we saw the promise of God to provide a king. Like a shoot coming out of a fallen stump who would blossom and flower by preserving a remnant of his faithful followers. Then in the next section, chapters 13 to 27, Isaiah went from one powerful nation to another in three cycles of five prophecies each, showing us that not one of the world's most powerful people could ever accomplish the restoration that God promises. 
all of them, all of those powerful people and empires needed to be judged themselves. And we saw in this section that God's concern was never with Israel alone, but also with all the nations of the world. And then in the next section, chapters 28 to 35, Isaiah describes the nature of the coming restoration of the remnant of God's people. He describes a kingdom of abundant grace and mercy where man-made religion and hard work would never measure up, but the joy of simply trusting in the God who promises these things and entrusting the king that he appoints, that joy cannot be compared to any other joy. And then finally in chapters 36 through 39, Isaiah interrupts his extensive poetry with a collection of narratives where he's no longer telling us to trust Yahweh's king. He shows us in narrative an Israelite king who set his hope firmly on the king of heaven and the word of his promise. King Hezekiah was the key character there. The point of all of act one was that judgment and restoration are both coming. And Yahweh is the one doing it. He executed both judgment and restoration through his coming king, upon whose shoulders in chapter 9 the government shall be. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And in chapter 11, this king comes forth like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. He will not judge only by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. He will not need to decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with his righteousness, he will perfectly judge the poor and he will grant equity for the meek of the earth. But by the end of act one, Even the faithful king Hezekiah that we see from 36 on, he ends up trusting more in the world power of Babylon than in Yahweh as he he shows off the the treasures of his house. And so that act closes with an assurance that the king and people alike must go away under judgment into exile. And so we get to act two. The curtain raises on act two with a declaration of comfort to the exiled people. In chapter 40, verse 1, God declares comfort, comfort to my people on two fronts, that her warfare with Babylon will soon end, and her sin before God will soon be pardoned. As the opening verse of Act 2. And the rest of chapter 40 explains why these things are so, why they should get comfort from their warfare with Babylon and their sin before God. It's because Yahweh has not only forgotten them, but he is the only one both willing and able to restore them and to judge their enemies. We're right back to judgment and restoration. The first part of these chapters, uh, this, this act, chapters 40 through 48, describe how Yahweh will bring their warfare with Babylon to an end. There is no other God. There is no idol who is able to do this. Yahweh is supreme far above all idols. And to prove it, 
Within these chapters, he names the name of his chosen savior centuries in advance. In 44 verse 28 and in 45 verse 1, he names Cyrus, who would be the king of Persia who conquers the empire of Babylon. And Cyrus would then issue a decree allowing the Jews to return home and rebuild their temple and their nation. Yahweh is showing that he's the one in control of all of this. So God will judge the idols. He will judge Babylon and he will restore the trusting remnant of his people. And then part two of this act, chapters 49 through 55, they then move on to describe after having dealt with their warfare with Babylon, he moves on to describe how he will deal with their sin against him. He will bring their sin to an end. And in these chapters, we saw that there is no other God, there is no idol, and there is no amount of religious activity that can ever pay for the sins of, his, of God's people. But Yahweh will send a servant. And this servant was celebrated chiefly in four songs in the book, chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53. This servant, we were told, he will himself take responsibility for the people's sin. He will suffer on their behalf and die the death they deserved to die. And he does this so that they can go free, so that they can shine like lights to advance the glory of Yahweh in all the earth, so that they can extend the invitation to all men and women everywhere to come and eat at Yahweh's table, to come and drink from Yahweh's fountain without money and without price. And that's how Act 2 ends, with incredible anticipation hanging in the air anticipation for what god might do in the world and this anticipation is so electric that even the trees of the field will clap their hands over it and this anticipation is so unstoppable that god's word of promise is compared to the rain and the snow that are guaranteed to come and water the earth Friends, there is no other God like this. We have an amazing God. And that moves us into Act 3 of the book. Act 3 picks up right here and it takes this anticipation and this hope, but it launches our hopes even farther into the future. Chapter 56 begins with a picture of those who were typically excluded from the community of God's people, foreigners and eunuchs. And it describes how they will be welcomed one day into Yahweh's house of prayer. Chapters 56 through 59 then describe how much work remains to be done in God's people to get them to the point where that can happen, that vision. To the point where they can shine like lights among the nations to bring these foreigners in. But in those chapters, we see that the work to be done in these people is simply not possible for them to do themselves. So at the end of chapter 59, we see Yahweh himself suiting up for battle. He commits to doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. And that leads into the center of this third act, chapters 60 to 62, which presents an amazing vision 
of all that Israel and Jerusalem could become. A place where peoples and nations are attracted to come from afar. A land that is at peace with the nations surrounding it that once oppressed her. A people receiving tribute and wealth from the ends of the earth. A a community known for being a place of bright light, eternal righteousness, social justice, exuberant praise, stunning beauty, unending delight, the approval of God, and a secure and unshakable future. This vision for the future of chapters 60 through 62 is possible only when Yahweh sends his appointed conqueror to make it so. That's why after that we hit chapter 63 and that conqueror is described as the one who crushes all opposition, trampling down rebels until their blood spatters his garments. Having suited up, In chapter 59, he now in chapter 63 completes what he promised to do. This then leads Isaiah in the rest of 63 into chapter 64 into a beautiful and glorious celebration of Yahweh's steadfast love, followed by a profound prayer of repentance. Isaiah models for these people how to pray like people who in no way deserve to be spared the conqueror's justice. Like a people who in no way deserve to be on the receiving end of his kingdom restoration. And this prayer moves Isaiah into his closing sequence. Chapters 65 and 66 where he assures his audience that a new creation is coming. A new heaven and a new earth which they can be a part of and which they can begin to be a part of right now if they would only be humble and contrite, if they would tremble at God's word of judgment against them and turn away from their sin to trust in him alone. If they do these things, they can be in a whole new world where they must proclaim the glory of their God and they must, for a little while, endure the suffering that they will receive for proclaiming God's glory. Friends, can you see why Jesus and the apostles loved Isaiah so much? Isaiah covers so much ground in these 66 chapters. I know it's easy for us to lose sight of it all as we go chapter by chapter, which is why I'm now taking this time to pull it all together. Almost the entire Christian faith is contained within this book. Our created purpose, our fallen condition, our hope in God's Messiah, whom we now know to be Jesus of Nazareth, the new life we are called to in Christ, and our hope for the future with Christ. This is why it's so critical that we understand Israel's story, because her story is our story. We get the outlines of it from the Old Testament historical books, but it's only from the prophets, of whom Isaiah is chief, that we get the inner life of Israel, the joy and the pain of faith, the deep devastation and brokenness of sin, and the glorious encouragement of God's comfort. We ought to love Isaiah for this reason more than any other, 
Because above all else, he shows us, he introduces us to, and he fosters our relationship with the lover of our soul, the king of kings and lord of lords, the suffering servant, the coming victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God, in whom we have set all our hope. So how does Isaiah bring it all home? Let's end this sermon series where Isaiah ends it. By looking at how God's glory advances in the remaining verses of chapter 66. Verses 18 through 24. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish, Pool, and Lud who draw the bow. To Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to Yahweh on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh. And some of them also I will take for priests And for Levites, says Yahweh. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Here at the end of his book, Isaiah wants us to go out with three truths I will deal with very quickly. The seeds of these truths have been scattered all throughout his book, but they blossom here in a fresh and astonishingly radical way. First, God's glory is to gather all nations. He gathers all nations. Verse 18, and it is his glory to do so. He gathers them to see his glory. Second, He gathers these nations by sending out his people. In verses 19 through 21, his people, he'll put a sign among them. I think he's talking about that appointed one who's coming, the king, servant, conqueror. I'll put that sign among them. And they will see his glory and they will go out and they will proclaim his glory among the nations. In these verses, verses 19 to 21, We have the clearest missionary mandate in the entire Old Testament. 
where God's people must see his glory and go out and proclaim. And look at what happens in verse 19. Having gone out to declare God's glory, verse 20, he says, you will find your brothers. You're out among these nations and you're going to find brothers. And you're going to bring them back as pure offerings to God. The same way you've always brought your grain offering in clean vessels. You're going to bring these people back. And they are going to be pure. And they're going to become your brothers. But not only that, look how radical this gets. Verse 21. Some of them will become priests and Levites. Outsiders. Foreigners. He's saying things will change. These roles of priesthood will no longer be only for sons of Aaron, one man, nor will they even be members of the tribes of Levi, nor will they even be citizens of the nation of Israel. But everyone will become priests. So God will gather all nations by sending out his people The third point here is he does it so that both old and new creation will remain forever. In verse 22, those who worship Yahweh will remain as long as the new heavens and the new earth remain. In verse 23, the authentic worship of all flesh will continue on forever. And in verse 24, his last statement The broken corpses of those who rebel against Yahweh will likewise remain forever, chewed on by worms and ravaged by unquenchable fire. Friends, what Isaiah teaches in this book has eternal implications. You can't just take it or leave it. You can't walk away from this book unchanged or unmoved. The ideas in this book are forever. And we get this about Isaiah's teaching of the old creation and the new creation. Both will last forever. The new creation doesn't replace the old creation to do away with it. You're going to be in one or the other forever. If you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ... You are welcomed into glorious community and peace with God forever. This God is worth your full allegiance. But I must say that if you reject the glory of this God, which has been revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ, if you think you can find your own way and blaze your own trail, you will become a repulsive spectacle and you will become a monument to the glory of God in his judgment forever and ever. May all glory be given to our God and to his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, upon whom we have set our hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Isaiah that teaches us so much about who Jesus is, what he came to do. Help us to trust. 
Help us to believe. Help us to turn to you. Lord, no amount of effort of our own can make us right with you. Only Jesus can do that. Please welcome us in. Draw us in. Send us out that we may gather more brothers and sisters and bring them in to join us as priests. And we pray that your glory would advance in all the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.